Tonight, we are covering another very popular question, a very um, common asked question, even for the person who grew up in the church, they asked this question, or even for the person who just gave their life to the Lord, they asked this question. And the question that we're covering for tonight is, how were people saved in the Old Testament? How were people saved in the Old Testament? So that's the title of the message tonight. And if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, we're opening to an exciting passage, a lovely passage, and a passage that you're probably scared to read, if I'm being honest. If you have your Bibles with me, will you open to Leviticus chapter 16? Hey, we're excited about Levitical law. Amen. Leviticus 16. Hey, we started off the night with Lay's. We had Limbo. We had Lemonade. I promise you this wasn't planned. Continuing with the L's, we're going into Leviticus tonight. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Leviticus 16. And then later on, I'll tell you where we'll be in Hebrew. So we'll be kind of in two passages tonight. But we're starting with Leviticus 16. And as, as I said, for some of us, when we hear the book of Leviticus, if we're being honest, we shy away from it. We get intimidated by it. We even may say there's no point in reading this. I've heard people say, man, I'm not going to read the Old Testament because Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. So I'm just going to read the Gospels and Paul's letters and I'm going to read the Revelation. But what I want to tell you tonight is I want to show you tonight that Jesus is all through the Old Testament. And praise the Lord for that. Jesus is in Genesis all the way to the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. Jesus is all through the Old Testament. And what's crazy is in my study, this is what I realized. Leviticus is probably very neglected, if we're being honest, by most readers of the Bible. When we get to Leviticus, when we get to Levitical law, and then you have, you know, Numbers, and you have Deuteronomy, we start to check out and we just want to get to the next thing. You know, we just came out of Exodus and where, man, Moses parted the Red Sea and got, saw the golden calf and broke the stone tablets and was in the presence of God. But when we get to Leviticus, our mindset of the Old Testament starts to change. But what I want to tell you is when you see the power that's in this book, because I believe that there is power in all of the word of God. When you see the power that is in Leviticus, it will change your mindset. And so a little bit about Leviticus, this book right here, it establishes the guidelines by which God is to be known and worshipped. So this was the guidelines to the nation of Israel, how they could know God and how they were supposed to worship God. And if we're being honest, college students, Leviticus is more relevant than we realize. The book of Leviticus gave the nation of Israel the instruction they needed to worship God, but not just worship God, worship God correctly. There was a way to approach God. They had to approach God with a reverence, with a respect, with a healthy fear for God. And what I want to encourage you with tonight is this right here. God doesn't give us instruction to keep us from something, but God gives us instruction because he wants to give us everything that we need. God doesn't give us this instruction or give us the Bible to keep us from something. Like, like Alan just prayed, man, we think Leviticus or the Bible is just a book of rules, a book of do's and don'ts, but it's so much more than that. The Bible is the guideline is literally the boundaries. It tells you the boundaries of how you should live your life. And the thing about it is when you step outside of boundaries, that's usually when hurt and other things that are negative happen. But when you live within God's guidelines, you can live a fulfilling, a promise-filled, an awesome life. I'm not saying that it won't be hard. I'm not saying struggles won't come. But when you live according to God's word, when you know God's instruction, you realize, you'll see that he gives you everything that you need. And when we follow God's instruction, he blesses us for our obedience. To kind of set the stage tonight, I'm, I'm taking you back to a time when I was in middle school. When I was in middle school, the goal was to play varsity basketball. And Daniel knows this. He saw this. Uh, he met me as an eighth grader. Um, Nah, PJ might not know this. So thankfully, nobody saw 6th grade Dakota and 7th grade Dakota. If I'm being honest, 6th grade Dakota was about yay high and yay wide. You know, you know what I'm saying? I had, a, I had a coach tell me, he said, Red, the only shape that you know is round. I heard for it. I ain't going to lie. But the goal, the goal for me in middle school as a 6th grader, 7th grader, and 8th grader was to play varsity basketball. And luckily, I didn't have just a coach tell me, hey, Dakota, the only shape you know is round. I had another coach that called me Red Robin, and every time he called me Red Robin, I had to say yum. That was also another traumatic experience. But I made it through. I made it to high school, praise the Lord. And I graduated college. Amen. 
But luckily, the varsity coach, he asked me a serious question. As a sixth grader going to trials, he asked me the serious question. He said, Dakota, do you ever want the chance to play varsity basketball? I went to Elmore Park, once an eagle, always an eagle, love the eagles. If you're an Affluent Wildcat, don't mess with you. I ain't going to lie. The loyalty runs deep. No, I'm just kidding. We, team Jesus now. Um, he asked me the serious question of, Dakota, do you want a chance at playing varsity basketball? And I said, as a sixth grader, of course, coach, I will do whatever it takes to play varsity basketball. And he told me in a serious and a much kinder way than my other coaches. He said, Dakota, if you want to play varsity basketball here, you have to lose weight and you have to get in shape. And at that time, my sixth grade year at Elmore Park, we had the smallest gym in the county. I ain't going to lie, when the gym was packed out, though, it was a different type of energy. I ain't going to lie. So we ran a lot more because our court was smaller. So that means longer, longer runs, and that means in a shorter amount of time. If you're an athlete, them down and backs in basketball usually get 10 seconds. My sixth grade year, we got eight seconds. And again, shorter, rounder Dakota, didn't like eight seconds. Um, and so what I did was sixth grade year, I, I played, I was on the development team. Seventh grade year, I was on the JV team. And that seventh grade year, I knew I only had one more year. I had one more chance at playing varsity basketball. And so what I did was I went into that summer, and I lost as much weight as I could. I mean, I would go see my grandparents in the summer. They had some type of weights. I would do whatever I could with weightlifting, didn't know how to do it just yet. I would swim laps because I heard swimming was really good. And this weight just started to fall off of me, praise the Lord. And when I come into, you know, when you go into middle school, you get to go to registration a little early, pick up your schedule, you know, that big day, and you get to see your classes posted on social media who do I have class with and um, I, I'm for real y'all, y'all been there done that man, college students y'all still doing that hey you signed up for the 915 nah I signed up for the 1240 I get it um, the coach saw me coach Edwards is his name he saw me in the eighth grade and he said Dakota I can't wait to see you at tryouts and because he knew that work that I put in and it paid off because I go through trials I ain't gonna lie I killed at these trials, too. I ain't going to cap. I wish y'all were flies on the wall back in the day. was killing these folks with one move. It's called the up and under. It still works today if you play basketball. It's a phenomenal, fundamental uh, rule, uh, move. And so we get to the end of the trials. I make it to the final cut. And I get to this moment, you know, as an athlete or as a musician, when you try out for something, as you go through cuts and as you go through tryouts, that, mo- that moment of you make it to the final cut and you're waiting to hear the final decision. Well, Coach Edwards calls me into his office and he says, Dakota, you made the team this year because you did what I asked you to do. Dakota, you're going to make the team this year because you did what I asked you to do. And in this moment, I was super excited as an eighth grader. I'm finally playing varsity basketball. But what it taught me was listening to the instruction of my head coach got me on the team. But it's much deeper than that. I got to be a part of something because I listened to the authoritative instruction from my head coach. I listened to the instruction from my authority. And college student, what I want to show you tonight in Leviticus 16 is God's word is not just instruction. It's authoritative instruction. And for Israel, they had much more on the line. The Israelites had much more on the line than just playing a varsity-level sport. What they had on the line was worshiping God correctly and with reverence. And in Leviticus 16, we see what happens when Israel listens to the authoritative instruction from God. And so before we pray, what I'm going to let you all know is I got two main points, but I got like 15 subpoints. Don't worry. Well, I promise you we're going we're gonna to get through this tonight because every part of it, we are going to, Leviticus 16 is the day of atonement, is what, known, is what is known as the day of atonement. And we're about to break this down piece by piece as Aaron, who was the priest at this time, had to follow specific instruction to make atonement for the nation's sin. So I promise we're going to play volleyball tonight, but we're going to work through the day of atonement. Y'all with me? Praise the Lord. So let's pray and let's dive into God's word. God, you're good. Thank you for you. God, thank you for tonight. Lord, thank you for Leviticus 16. Lord, I pray for the person in the room tonight that is unsure of the Old Testament, God, that is intimidated to read the Old Testament. God, I pray from your word tonight, God, from Leviticus 16, Lord, they would be encouraged, Lord, that they would have a different mindset of the Old Testament, God, Lord, that they would see that your son Jesus is all through the Old Testament. God, the day of atonement is pointing to Jesus Christ, which is our superior atonement. Lord, I pray for the person in the room that might not know Jesus tonight, Lord. I pray, God, that even if they don't accept you into their life tonight, God, I pray that questions are answered, 
God, I pray that they would have the courage to talk to somebody about their questions, Lord. And God, that they would repent of their sins, Lord, that they would believe in you. And God, that they would cross over from death to life, God. Lord, you give us life, Lord. And so thank you for tonight, Lord. Pray for our Denver team. God, we pray for what you're going to do tonight. And if you agree with that prayer, will you say amen? Amen. So Leviticus 16, we're going to work through verses 2 through 30. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to break it down uh, point by point, and I'm going to read it through verse by verse. But I'm going to go ahead and give you my first point of the night. One, one of my two points is, number one, the way people were saved in the Old Testament was, number one, faith in the current sacrifice. They had faith in the current sacrifice of what was happening. And you may say, Dakota, what do you mean by that? I'm going to start in verse 2, and we're going to read to verse 5, and this is what God's word says right here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 2 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he will die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way. So verse 3 tells Aaron how he's supposed to enter into the most holy place. Number one, he's supposed to enter with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Verse 4, he is to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. And then verse 5 says, he is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So subpoint number A tonight is the preparation. Verses 1 through 5, verses 2 through 5 tells us the preparation of the day of atonement, the preparation for the day of atonement. And verse 2 very clearly tells us that Aaron couldn't go, just go into the holy place whenever he wanted to because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was in the Old Testament. In Exodus, we see Moses, he gets the rules and the regulations and the guidelines for the tabernacle. And so now for the day of atonement, uh, Moses is giving Aaron the same different guidelines for the day of atonement. And if he would, if he went into the, the holies of holies whenever he wanted to, he would die. God makes that very clear. And you may ask and even think, well, isn't that kind of harsh? But it's because the Lord said, I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. In the tabernacle, this is where the glorious presence of God was. This is where God's full glory was at this time. Which means God alone would decide who could enter his throne room and under what circumstances. This shows the seriousness of God's presence, and Aaron couldn't take it lightly. College student, may I ask you tonight, how do you approach the presence of God? Because again, on this side of the cross, the veil has been torn. Hallelujah. We can approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence because of what's been done for us. But when you go into your your time with the Lord, when you go into your time of prayer, I want to ask you, how do you approach the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Because even Aaron, to the point of what he had to wear, the the things that he had to wear were, were giving him a sense of humility. And so I ask you, and praise God, it doesn't matter what we wear when we approach God now, but when you do approach God, do you approach God with a pridefulness about yourself or do you approach God With the humbleness of God, I'm not worthy. I am broken. I'm in need of a Savior. Because depending on how you approach the throne of God will determine a lot how you hear from the throne of God. How you approach the throne of God will have an effect on how your time with the Lord goes. And this is a reminder for us that God's presence presence isn't something that should be taken lightly. We have full access to God's presence because what he has done for us. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says this right here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That is Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. And then we see verses 3 through 5. It shows a specific instruction on what Aaron was to wear and what he had to bring for the sacrifices. Aaron had to make multiple sacrifices on this day. And what, he had to, what all he had to bring was he had to bring a young bull for a sin offering. He had to bring a ram for a burnt offering. 
And then he had to get two male goats from the Israelite community. And one was for a sin offering. And one was for the scapegoat that was sent out into the wilderness that we will cover here in a few minutes. And then he would have another ram for a burnt offering. So from the jump, Leviticus 1 through 5 is very serious. And here's the catch. I didn't read Leviticus 16 verse 1, but I'm about to now because this shows the seriousness of what happened. If you go to Leviticus chapter 10... Aaron's sons didn't take God's word seriously. Aaron's sons didn't take his instruction seriously. And so this is what happened. Leviticus 16.1 says this right here. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. It wasn't just because they approached the presence of the Lord. It's because they approached the presence of the Lord incorrectly. The presence of God is something that can't be taken lightly. And so point, sub-point A is we see this is the preparation of the Day of Atonement. But sub-point B is the sin offering for the high priest. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 14, and God's word says this right here. <clears throat> Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. That's important. We'll come back to that later. Next, he will take two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. After Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one Lot for the Lord and the other for an uninhabitable place. Verse 9, he is to present the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by a Lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for an uninhabitable place. Verse 11 says, when Aaron presents the bull for his sin offering and makes atonement for himself, And his household, he will slaughter the bull for his sin offering. Then he is to take a fire pan full of blazing coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and bring them inside the curtain. Verse 13, he is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense covers the mercy seat that is over the testimony or else he will die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger against the east side of the mercy seat. Then he will sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers before the mercy seat seven times. And so subpoint B, we see the sin offering for the high priest. Aaron is to make atonement for himself and his household first. And we see that in verse 6. The first sacrifice is the bull for a sin offering for Aaron and his household. And after offering the bull for his sin offering, Aaron will take a fire pan full of blazing coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and bring them inside the curtain. And so what's happening right now inside the curtain, Aaron is inside the holiest place of the tabernacle. He is in the holy of holies. He is in the most holy place of the presence of God um, inside the curtain. And Aaron, what he is doing right now, he would have placed incense on the fire before the Lord so that the cloud of incense covered the seat that is over the testimony. Because again, that's where the presence of God is in Leviticus 16. And what's cool is this would create more than a pleasant smell. And it would protect Aaron from full exposure to the glory of the Lord. Remember, his sons died because they approached God incorrectly. And so Aaron had the same thing at stake. If he didn't do the instru- if he didn't follow the instructions correctly, death was on the line. And then what's so cool is Aaron would take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it against the east side of the mercy seat and then the mercy seat as well seven times. The idea was that God was above the mercy seat as we saw in Leviticus 16.2. In verse 2 of Leviticus 16 tonight, we see that's where God's presence is. And as God looks down upon the Ark of the Covenant before Aaron sprinkles the blood on the altar, what God sees is the sin of man. And as we know, it's very clear in Scripture, sin separates us from God. And so the idea is this right here, college student. When Aaron sprinkled the atoning blood, that is what the Lord would see, meaning Israel's sin was covered and atonement was made. And so don't miss this. Aaron is inside the holies of holies, inside the curtain. And the, the, the incense is burning, covering the Ark of the Testimony, protecting um, Aaron from from the full presence of God, the full glory of God. And before the blood is sprinkled, all God sees is is the sin of Israel. But when Aaron sprinkles the blood, God sees blood. And when God sees the sacrifice, 
There is forgiveness. And clearly we see in the Old Testament that forgiveness required a sacrifice. Even from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned, what did God do? He offered the first sacrifice of Scripture, and that atoned for their sin. And this captures the thought behind the Hebrew word for atonement, which is kipper. I hope I said that right. I haven't taken Hebrew. Is kipper, which means to cover. So in this context, in the Old Testament, sin wasn't removed, but it was covered in sacrificial blood. And Hebrews 9.22 says this right here. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Israel's sin in this time in Leviticus 16, when the sacrifices were made and the blood was sprinkled on the altar, God would see that. And that's when their sin was atoned for. That's when forgiveness was made. But that's not the only thing. This is just for Aaron just had to do this for himself. He's making atonement for himself and his household first. Because then subpoint C is this right here. Aaron had to make the sin offering for the people. So subpoint C is the sin offering for the people. And that's from Leviticus 15, verses um, 15 through 17. And God's word says this right here. When he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the curtain, he will do the same with its blood as he did with the bull. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way for all their sins because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. He will do the same for the tent of meeting that remains among them because it is surrounded by their impurities. Verse 17 says this right here. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the most holy place until he leaves after he has made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole assembly of Israel. And so after Aaron makes atonement for himself and his household, he now makes atonement for the people Um, And he was to take one of the male goat's blood and also bring that inside the curtain. And so the bull was for his sin. He made atonement for his sin. And now the first goat from the Israelites was for their sin. In verse 16, this makes atonement for the most holy place for all of Israel's sins and their iniquity. So what has happened so far is Aaron, he sacrificed a bull for his sin in his household. And now he's sacrificed one of the goats from the nation of Israel to make atonement for their sin. But it doesn't stop there. Halfway there, team, I promise. Subpoint D is he has to atone for the incense altar. Subpoint D is he has to make atonement for the incense altar. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. But also, uh, subpoint E is this. He makes atonement for the altar of burnt offering as well. He makes atonement for the altar of the burnt offering. And so what he's doing is he's working his way from the holiest place of the tabernacle, and he's working his way outside. So just as Aaron cleansed the most holy place, he would do the same for the incense altar and the altar of burnt offering. And we see that with verse 18 and 19. It says this right here. Then he will go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He is to take some of the the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns on all sides of the altar. So, Collison, this is the big picture that's happening right here. I know I've covered, I feel like I've covered a lot in just a short amount of time. But this is the big picture that is happening right here. And this this will be on the screen right here. What Aaron is doing is this right here. The pollution of sin has been washed and swept away from the deepest, most holy room of the tabernacle outwards. The pollution of sin has been washed and swept away from the deepest, most holy room of the tabernacle outwards. And so Aaron goes into the deepest, the holiest part of the tabernacle, makes atonement there first for his sin, for the nation of Israel's sin. And now he's working his way, cleansing the place of God. Because again, this is their place of worship in their journey to the promised land. Because in Leviticus, they haven't got to the promised land. They're still on their journey getting the Levitical law, working, working and following the Lord to the promised land. All the pollution of Israel has been swept out the front door and now waits to be carried away entirely. 
Again, if you don't, if you say Jesus isn't in the Old Testament, this is a clear picture of what Jesus does for us. When you accept Jesus into your life as your personal Lord and Savior, what he does is when you repent of your sins, when you believe in Jesus and accept Christ into your life, what Jesus does is Jesus goes into the deepest, the darkest places of your life. He knows the sin in your life that nobody else knows. He knows the sin that you hide from your best friend because you think if my best friend knew what I was struggling with, they wouldn't be friends with me anymore. He calls you, I don't know what that sin is for you. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's pride. The, the, the list of sin could keep going. But when you accept Jesus into your life, he cleans that up and he takes it away from you. Aren't you thankful for that? He goes into the deepest, darkest parts of your life and he strips that sin from you. And that's what, that's what Aaron is doing for the nation of Israel right now. He is going to the deepest, most holy place of the tabernacle, making atonement there first and working his way to the front door of the tabernacle, making an atonement at each place of their place of worship at this time. And because of their faith in this sacrifice, again, the Bible's clear. If there's no blood, there's no forgiveness. What he's doing is as he's making atonement for each part of the tabernacle, forgiveness is being made for the nation of Israel. And we know when our sins are forgiven and when we accept Jesus, when we have faith, let me not forget that word, when we have faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, that's when our sins are taken away. And Jesus does the same thing for us. Don't miss this truth that comes for this. When you come to know Jesus personally, he does the same thing. <clears throat> and I love that because, again, we live in such a world. Notice this. Aaron starts from the inside and works his way out. But we live in such a, a world today. We live in such a culture today that the lost people think that they have to clean up their outside first before they can step inside the walls of the church. Haven't you heard that before? You're inviting your friend, your family member to the church, and they say, oh, man, I need to get this together first, and then I'll come to the church. But Scripture is very clear. It's the complete opposite. Man, you come with your mess, and when you encounter Jesus, Jesus cleans up your mess. And so it makes me think about this. When I think about working from the inside out, when we accept Jesus and get his word, get in his word, things start to change for us on the inside first. And when there's a change on the inside, the change on the outside comes. But you have to experience Jesus internally first if you want to see Jesus work externally. If you want to see Jesus work in your life externally, you have to accept him first internally. And if we want to see change, it starts on the inside. If you want to see change in your life, it starts on the inside for you. And for me, this, th- this makes me think about a term that I learned in school. If you say it fast enough, it's kind of a hard word to say. We all learn this term in school. You probably don't remember the definition of it. Metamorphosis. Anybody remember that word? No? All right, praise the Lord. Think about metamorphosis. The definition for metamorphosis is this right here. The process of transformation from an immature form to an adult form. And as I was studying, what this made me think of was the life cycle of a butterfly. Such, such a simple thing, such a simple thing in our world is the life cycle of a butterfly. But what it has to go through is the process of metamorphosis. That's the last time I'm saying that word. A butterfly doesn't just start as a butterfly. It has to go through a process. It has to go through a transformation. A butterfly goes through this process. And what it does is it starts as an egg. I spent a lot of time studying Leviticus 16 and the life cycle of a butterfly. It starts as an egg, and then it becomes a caterpillar, and then it goes into what is called the pupa stage. I hope I said that right. If I have any people, environmental people in here, I'm so sorry. It goes into what is the pupa stage, and the pupa stage is known as the transition stage. And for most of us, when we think about this, we probably think about the cocoon, the thing that, is, that, that they weave around themselves to protect themselves as this transformation is happening. And if we just look at the process of the pupa, the process of the pupa, the transition stage, the, the quick eye, if you just look at it quickly, you, you would realize, like, you would probably think that nothing is happening. 
But all the change is happening on the inside. There are huge changes that are being made. Inside this butterfly, what is happening from this caterpillar in the pupa stage? What is happening is they're developing their wings. And as I studied it, this is what I learned. Because again, the caterpillar goes into this pupa and starts to become a butterfly. In the pupa stage, the caterpillar, it gets a new set of legs. It gets a new set of eyes, and it gets a new mouth. It is a new creation after the pupa stage, after it completes the transition. And when the insect emerges, the thing that started as an egg is now a butterfly. But in the life cycle of a butterfly, the purpose of a butterfly is different than the purpose of a caterpillar. The purpose of the butterfly is different than the purpose of the egg. The purpose of the butterfly is different than the purpose of the pupa. The difference The difference is it went through a transformation from the inside out. And college students, for some of you, you haven't seen change externally in your life because you haven't experienced change internally in your life. You haven't experienced what Jesus can do when he transforms your life. But the transformation has to start on the inside first. Think about it this way. If you fill your thoughts with things of the world, don't be shocked when that's all you desire. If you fill your mind with the things of the world, don't be shocked if that's all you desire. When all you're around is sin, don't be shocked when you're living in sin. But let me give you the flip side of that coin. But if you fill your mind with the things of God and surround yourself with the things of God, you will see how God can change your life. Just like the butterfly, it got new eyes, it got a new mouth. When you accept Jesus into your life, did you know he'll give you a new set of eyes? That way, when the way you were looking at the world beforehand, when you accept Jesus, you look, instead of looking at the world from a worldly perspective, you look at it from a heavenly perspective. What about a new mouth? The butterfly got a new mouth. When you accept Jesus, you'll, you'll talk differently. If you know Jesus personally, the way you used to talk about people, the way you used to talk about yourself, some of you probably don't even love yourself, but it's because you haven't experienced the greatest love of all time, which is Jesus Christ who came from heaven, who left the throne of heaven, lived on this earth as a man. He was 100% man and 100% God. When you experience that love from Jesus Christ, your Savior, you'll have a new set of eyes. You'll look at the world differently. You'll look at yourself differently. You'll have a new mind. You'll think differently. You'll think about things and people from a heavenly perspective. You'll walk differently. The life that you lived in the the old days, when you know Jesus, you'll walk in a different way. You'll see differently. You'll talk differently. You'll listen differently. When you come into contact with Jesus, not the church now, not with Dakota, not with a sport. When you come in contact with Jesus Christ, that's when transformation happens. And the Bible is very clear about that because it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Just like the butterfly through the pupa stage, when it transformed, it was a new creation. It had a new purpose. College student, when you know Jesus, he gives you purpose. College students, when you come to know Jesus, you have new life. Let me finish the rest of this verse. The old has passed away and see the new has come. But the thing is you have to be in Christ. You can't be in the world. You can't be all in your job. Your job doesn't make you a new creation. The amount of money you make doesn't make you a new creation. The things that you have. The world we live in is so materialistic, the the things that we desire, that doesn't give you new life. But if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The question you have to answer is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? He can transform your life from the inside out. I've I've seen it too many times. I say, it every, I say it every time I share the gospel. I've never met somebody who regretted giving their life to Jesus. We got regrets in our life, but giving your life to Jesus isn't one of them. Subpoint F is the scapegoat ritual. Subpoint F is the scapegoat ritual. I promise we're almost done with point one. Scapegoat ritual. And this right here is so important. I'm going to go back to my Bible because I need to read God's word. Verse 20 says this right here. When he has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, he is to present the live male goat. 
Verse 21, this is the scapegoat ritual right here. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. Verse 22 says this right here. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land and the man will release it there. So subpoint F is the scapegoat ritual. And what's so cool about this is Aaron has now made atonement from the most holy place of the tabernacle, worked his way out the front door of the tabernacle. And now what he, because again, he offered one goat to the Lord and that was made atonement for the people's sin. But the second goat, what he's doing is it's a symbol. It's again, just if you don't think Jesus is in the Old Testament, it's right here. Jesus, it's right here with the scapegoat ritual. He is transferring the nation of Israel's sin on this goat. And the beautiful thing about it is for the person, when it says the man appointed for the task, what would they were doing was they were taking it outside the camp. They were taking the goat outside the camp into the wilderness, meaning the goat wasn't coming back. The goat wasn't bringing their sins back. They were taking it into the wilderness, into a desolate land, and it would never come back because college students, when you come to know Jesus, your sin is taken away and it never comes back. When you know Jesus, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And in Leviticus 16, this is a symbolism. It's so much symbolism for Jesus. Their sins were being taken away and representing that it would never come back. Jesus is all through the Old Testament, and they had to have faith in this sacrifice. Leviticus 16.22, the goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land, and the man will release it there. When Jesus forgives you, you don't have to walk in guilt anymore. When Jesus forgives you, you don't have to walk in shame anymore. When Jesus forgives you, you can walk in freedom. But will you accept that truth tonight? And again, it's, it's a scapegoat ritual because this, this may cause you to think of the word scapegoat. And for, le- for believers in Jesus, this is what encourages, encourages us tonight. Through Jesus, our sins have been taken away. I can't say it any clearer than that. Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. If you want an encouraging verse to memorize, to pray, when I say Jesus forgives your sins, this is what it means right here. Psalm 103 says this right here. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love to those who fear him. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, your transgressions have been removed from you if you know Jesus Christ. I could just imagine watching this goat being led away as as an illustration of, man, that is my forgiveness right there. My sins have been taken from me. But it's important to remember this right here, college students. In Leviticus 16, this was a ritual that had to be repeated annually. This had to be repeated every single day year. So Aaron could only go into the presence of the Lord, into the holies of holies, once a year. Again, that just points us back to how do you handle, how do you approach the presence of God? We don't have a day of atonement anymore. We don't have one person who goes into the holies of holies for us anymore. But because of what Jesus has done, you can approach the throne of grace right now. But do you view it that way? Do you respect and have a reverence for God in that way? As we continue, subpoint G is the washing. We're at the washing part of the Day of Atonement. So we're on the back end of the Day of Atonement right here. Verse 23 and 24 says this right here. Then Aaron is to enter the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments he wore when he entered the most holy place, and leave them there. He will bathe his body with water in a, holy pl- in a holy place and put on his clothes. Then he must go out and sacrifice his burnt offering and the people's burnt offering. He will make atonement for himself and for the people. And so after all this has happened, again, entering into the holies of holies behind the curtain, working his way through the whole tabernacle, sending the goat into the wilderness, the time has come now. Aaron, is time, it's time to clean up and he is washing himself and he's getting ready to finish the Day of Atonement. But after the washing is subpoint H, the burnt offerings. 
Once Aaron has bathed and changed clothes, he will sacrifice his burnt offerings and the people's burnt offering. He would make atonement for himself and the people. And then the last, the last point, um, sub-point, is clean up. Everybody's got to clean up. Clean up, clean up. Everybody clean up. Amen. Even in Leviticus, they had to clean up. And so this is the final part of the Day of Atonement right here is the cleanup. For, for clean for cleanup, the man who released the goat into an uninhabitable place would need to bathe and wash his clothes before he could re-enter the camp. And then lastly, this is the last part of the Day of Atonement, the bull and the goat that was for the sin offering that was brought into the most holy place, they had to bring that outside the camp. They had to bring the hide, the flesh, and the waste, and they would burn the, the hide of the goat and the hide of the bull outside of the camp because, again, this is what they made, this is what they used to make atonement for their sins. So when they made atonement with the bull and with the goat, that's when their forgiveness was, uh, was given. And so now they had to burn the hide and the flesh and the remaining of the animal outside the camp. And when that was done, whoever did that, whoever burned the hide and the flesh and the rest of the animal outside the camp, before that they could come back into the camp, they would also need to bathe and wash their clothes before re-entering the camp. And the Bible is very clear in verse 30. It says, atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you. And you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. They would have to do this once a year, which means their forgiveness had a one-year warranty. Because obviously after the Day of Atonement, they would sin again. We, I mean, if you just flip to the next chapter, Leviticus 16, or if you go to Numbers, you see that the nation of Israel falls into sin again. But this was a permanent statue that forgave them of their sin every single year. And so what does that mean for the nation of Israel? Because, again, they had faith in the current sacrifice. But number two, my last point of the night is this right here. They had faith in the coming sacrifice. They had faith in the coming sacrifice of Jesus. And for, for anybody who's ever said, I don't think Jesus is in the Old Testament or the Old Testament is important, I want to encourage you with this. When you understand the Old Testament, it will bring a new understanding for you in the New Testament. Because what's so cool about the Day of Atonement is it is pointing directly to what Jesus is going to do for it. It was what Jesus was going to do for them in Leviticus and what Jesus has done for us. Jesus Christ's atonement for sin was like no other high priest. And I'm going to give you a few reasons why. I got three, I got three more subpoints, and these are the most important subpoints of the night, and we'll be done for the night. Subpoint A was Jesus was without sin. Remember, in the Day of Atonement, Aaron had to make a, atonement for himself first before he can even make atonement for himself. But when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was perfect. Remember, Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. He has been tempted in every way, just like me and you, but he never fell into sin. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, man, I mean, it, the Day of Atonement in Hebrews, there is just so much connection there. It says this right here. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. This is the verse I read earlier, uh, quoted earlier. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive the mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Remember, Aaron had to make atonement for himself first. Leviticus 16.6, Aaron will present the bull for his sin offering and make atonement for himself and his household. But because Jesus was without sin, he did not have to make atonement for himself. That's important. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, for this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for of the people. He did this once for all time. If, you, if you're underlining your Bible, he did this once for all time when he offered himself. If you're underlining anything, you underline that last sentence. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. Jesus was without sin, but subpoint uh, B is Jesus himself was the sacrifice. 
Remember, the bull was the sacrifice for Aaron. The goat was the sacrifice for the nation of Israel. But on this side of the cross, what they were looking for, what the people in Leviticus, the nation of Israel, what they were waiting for was Jesus to be the sacrifice himself. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Jesus himself was the sacrifice. So the whole day of atonement pointed to this sacrifice right here. You can't tell me Jesus is in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament points to what is to come. And Jesus is all through it. Animal sacrifice was sufficient for a temporary covering of sin, but only a perfect sacrifice could obtain eternal redemption. I said something a moment ago. In Leviticus, their forgiveness was a one-year warranty, but let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was superior because it was perfect, it was voluntary, and it was motivated by love. If I could tell you the most important thing tonight, college student, is this right here. Jesus loves you. And he loves you to the point of death on a cross. And I'm going to continue sharing a little bit more about that because this is the last part. This is the last subpoint of the night. I think y'all had like 15 subpoints tonight. Sorry, guys. I know school's a month away. I didn't mean to have you write your hand off. Subpoint C Jesus' sacrifice never has to be repeated. Again, like I said, in the Old Testament, they had a one-year warranty of their forgiveness. Because, and again, they would be forgiven year after year because of the Day of Atonement. And that's what, that's what they put their faith in, and that's how they experienced forgiveness. But the greatest thing about Jesus' death is his sacrifice never has to be repeated. And Hebrews 9, 25, and 26 says this right here. <clears throat> he did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the greatest, the greatest statement to, to close it out. Jesus' sacrifice doesn't have limited application. It endures forever. Jesus' forgiveness is forever. And so if I could give you a biblical answer for our question tonight, college student, this is the biblical answer of how um, people were saved in the Old Testament. And it's this right here. People in the Old Testament were saved just like us, and that's by faith. But what's so cool is they looked forward to the cross just like we look back at it. The direction is different, but the object is the same. It would be God's word would be contradictory if we were saved by faith in Matthew to Revelation and not saved by faith in Genesis to Malachi. They were saved by faith just like us, but just like we look back at the cross, they look forward to the cross because they knew a set. Again, a goat and a bull was making atonement for them for a year, but they knew that there was something better to come, and that was Jesus Christ who, again, didn't have to make atonement for himself, didn't have to repeat the atonement, and himself, he himself was the sacrifice. And so this is our biblical answer to the question tonight, college. And this is how people in the Old Testament were saved. They would look forward to the cross just like we look back at it. And I've said it multiple times tonight, college students, there is a God, the God of the universe, the God of creation, and he loves you. He loves you to the point of death on a cross. I've talked about that all night. The Bible is very clear. If there is no shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And in the Old Testament, imagine, think about this, the uh, amount of goats and bulls that were offered, the amount of blood that ran in the Old Testament 
didn't cover people forever, but what Jesus did once and for all covers you forever. Aren't you thankful for that? Jesus loves you to the point of death on a cross. And what you're called to do, you're called to respond. You're commanded to respond to his word. I believe God created the heavens and the earth. And when God created the heavens and the earth, when he looked at his creation, he looked at it and he said, it is good. But what happened was sin corrupted God's creation. Remember, just like Daniel covered in his sermon, how does God turn evil for good? Evil corrupts a good thing. God didn't create evil, but evil corrupts God's good things. So when God created the heavens and the earth, he looked at his creation and said it was good. But when, again, like I talked about instruction, following God's instruction is serious. Because from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's instruction, death was introduced into our world. A physical death and a spiritual death that we all have to face. We will all face two deaths one day. We will face a physical death here on earth. But we also face a spiritual death if we don't know Jesus. And what happens is sin leads us to a state of brokenness. As we prayed earlier for, our city, for the city of Memphis, we know the city of Memphis is broken. It doesn't take long to see that Memphis is broken and is in need of hope, is in need of love. But God loves us so much that he didn't want to leave us in this state of brokenness. So what God did was he sent his son Jesus to this earth. Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life that nobody else could so that he could die on the cross for your sin, my sin, and the whole world's sin. But what's so crazy is when people talk about the God we worship, talk about the God we serve, you know, they usually think the story. I heard Rick Jones tell me, he said he describes it as the greatest love story of all time. The greatest love story of all time. Most times people think the story stops there. Or most people think the gospel stops there, that it stops at Jesus' death. But when Jesus died a sinner's death on the cross, what they did was they put him in a tomb. They buried him in a tomb to show that he was really dead. And he was in that tomb for three days. The best part of Jesus is to come right here, right now. Jesus, three days later, God said, I'm going to show my power, I'm going to show victory, and I'm going to show my love for my people over sin and over death. And what God did was he rose his son from the dead bodily and victoriously. And what the Bible says is this right here. If you repent of your sins, I love the word repentance because all it is is this right here. Is you're walking one way, you're doing your own thing, but you come in contact with the gospel and you do a 180. Brother Steve describes it as a 180. And all, the only thing I would add to repentance is this right here. When you turn your back on something, you have to turn your face towards something. It's really hard to live for God if you're doing this right here, trying to turn your back, but you won't turn your face. When you turn your back on your old way of living and turn your face towards God, he forgives you of your sin. But remember, all through Leviticus, I didn't talk about how they had to work their way to heaven. Even today, I don't talk about how we have to work our way to heaven. It's not A, B, C, X, Y, Z to get to heaven. But what it is is when you repent of your sins, the next thing you have to do is you have to believe in Jesus Christ. Look at our biblical answer. They are saved just like us, and that is by faith. Do you have faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and lived the perfect, sinless life? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you accept that Jesus resurrected from the grave, defeating your sin? 